Well, this morning, uh, I want to say that we're at a particular moment in the life as of, of a culture. That's what I call a Kairos moment. Church, a Kairos moment is a significant time when conditions are ripe for change or whatever. But we're at a Kairos moment of change because of COVID-19 that's been lingering because of the situation in our culture after the aftermath of the general election, because of ongoing issues and the change that people are purporting. But this is a significant moment, and it's a good time for us just to stop. And as we hopefully come to the end of the COVID experience, and as we go forward, to ask ourselves, what should we be doing as the church, as, as this local church, as a body of believers? And so we've come up with this mission statement that the elders approved, that we walked through and thought about and adopted just internally before COVID, but now we want to bring it to you. And the, the purpose statement, the mission statement is helping broken people treasure Jesus. That said last week, we help, we walk with each other, we, we encourage each other, helping broken people worship, adore, rejoice in the one who's the Alpha and the Omega, the mediator between God and man, our Savior and our King, whose name is Jesus. So, so, so we are not in any way walking away from what we've been as a church. We want to be people who hold to the Scripture. We want to rejoice in our Reformation heritage. We believe that the Reformation of the 16th century was a recovery of the gospel, that the gospel was strong, and then it went into years of, it was layered over, layered over, layered, layered over, and the Reformation with the solas held up the glory of the gospel. We believe that we're saved by faith alone in the finished work of Christ alone by grace alone, God working in our hearts under the authority of the Bible alone as our ultimate statement of faith and to the glory of God alone. That's just who we are. But we want to be the type of people that internally ask ourselves, this mission statement won't be put on leatherheads or over doors, but just ask ourselves as we walk among ourselves, as we go to community group or men's or women's groups, are you helping broken people to treasure the one who is Almighty God, whose name is Jesus. And, and so that's, that's what we're about. I was reviewing an old hymn by Charles Wesley. It's entitled, Jesus, Lover of My Soul. And I just rejoiced in it. And the last stanza goes like this. Um, Plenteous grace with thee is found. Plenteous. Grace to cover all my sin. Let the healing streams abound. Healing, restoring. Let the healing streams abound. Make and keep me pure within. Thou of life, the fountain art. Freely let me take of thee. Spring thou up within my heart. Rise to all eternity. The healing streams. So the goodness of Christ, the mercy of Christ. So I said last week, uh, looked at the, we looked at the New City Catechism, question 15, that says that sin is ignoring God or doing what he doesn't want us to do, living as if God doesn't exist. And he goes on and says that, that sin brings death and disintegration. So sin brings disintegration, but Jesus brings flourishing. In Christ, all things hold together. And so we want to 
run to the Lord. We, we want to run to the one who says in John 10, whoever comes through me and goes out by me will find pasture for his soul. He'll be refreshed. I've come that they may have life and have it abundantly. So there's a paradigm that we hold out before people that gives kind of an overview, a quick overview of the Christian faith. Four different statements. Creation, God made us, create us in his image, male and female. Creation, fall, we fell into sin. All have inherited a sin nature that brings disintegration and sorrow. But then redemption by the cross. In the fullness of time, God became a man, born under the law to redeem those under the law that we might receive the full rights of sons. So, but after redemption, we have restoration. All too often, we stop at redemption. But the glory, the glory of the gospel, in part, is that Jesus comes to restore, to take our broken lives and to bring wholeness to them and, and radiance and, and harmony and, and hope. So my thesis this morning is that we speed or bring this restoration by continually tapping into the goodness of the triune God, especially the name of Jesus, as we walk in repentance. God takes our brokenness and he brings it together. We walk in repentance. Repentance means the change of heart and mind and attitude about myself, my sin, the character of God, and his path as we live. So two reasons why... We need this repenting, ongoing repentance, ongoing repentance. The first is this. Our eyes get clouded and we don't see well. We walk in a world that's not perfect. We deal with sin. We have an adversary called the devil. And so our eyes get clouded. There's an old or song I was reviewing this week that was popular in the 70s by a guy named Keith Green who died tragically. I love his music, but he says this. What, what can be done to an old heart like mine to soften it up with the oil of new wine? The oil is you, your spirit of love. Please wash me anew in the wine of your love. He says, you know, what, what can be done? He says, to an old heart, or really a cold heart like mine, to soften it up with the oil of new wine. The oil is you, Jesus. So wash me anew in the wine of your love. So, so the first reason is we're, we're, our eyes get clouded. The second reason is the restoration process is never finished, this side of heaven. It's an ongoing process, an ongoing process whereby the Holy Spirit enters our lives as we walk with one another and he heals our brokenness. It is never, ever finished. And so that's what the Bible says repeatedly in the verse of the in the worship God, repent and believe the good news or, or repent and be baptized or God has told everyone everywhere to repent and believe or Matthew 11, come to me all you who are weary and heavy laden and I'll give you rest. So we are re people who are called to, to repentance. So let's look at this little statement, helping broken people. When we reviewed this with a group of different groups of people, some people said it's going to be hard for people especially outside of the Christian faith, to hear the word broken. And we said, yeah, it will be hard. Uh, synonyms for broken would be needy or weary and heavy laden or those who are in emotion or physical pain. But 
brokenness. It's difficult to hear because it's a hard word. It's difficult to hear because we're captives to our culture. Let me mention a few things. There's a guy named B.B. Warfield who taught at Princeton in the 1800s, late 1800s. And he, he wrote a book or, or wrote a, something called Miserable Sinners. And he, he just went throughout church history and he, he, he looked at different statements and different articles of faith in the Church of England and the French Huguenot Church and, and, and the Reformed Church and the Dutch Church. They used the term miserable sinner. He talked about miserable sinner Christianity. And his thesis was that there's health found in exultant joy because we stand at the foot of the cross and see that the gospel is greater than we ever realized. And he used this little term. I love this term. He used the term appeased remorse appeased, covered by the blood of Christ, appeased remorse. We sorrow over sin, but we look to Christ with hope. And he wrote this, and it's in the worship guide. This is from volume seven in his collective works. He says, we must always be accepted for Christ's sake, or we cannot ever be accepted at all. This is not true of us only when we believe. It is just as true after we have believed. It will continue to be true as long as we live, our need of Christ does not cease with our believing, nor does the nature of our relation to him or to God through him ever alter, no matter what our attainments in Christian graces or our achievements in Christian behavior may be, it is always on his blood and righteousness alone that we can rest. Though we're blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies in Christ, Ephesians 1, 3, we are still in ourselves miserable sinners. So, so we are people in need. We're broken. We are people who stand outside and say, I need the mercy and the goodness of Christ. I think of, well, I think of the Sermon on the Mount. Okay. Jesus says in Matthew 5, happy are the poor in spirit. Poor in spirit means people understand their sin. Happy are those who mourn, who mourn over their sin, who see the sin around. They mourn. Happy are the meek, the humble, the people who recognize they need a Savior. Happy are those who hunger and thirst for this righteousness. Happy are the merciful. Merciful people are those who've been extended mercy. Happy are the pure in heart. Happy are the peacemakers. But happy starts with happy are the poor in spirit. See, the gospel is greater than I can ever realize. The love of Christ is greater than I can ever realize. And my sin is deeper than I understand. John Newton, the guy who wrote Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. And that has been Changed in many hymnals to say that saved a person like me or saved a semi-enlightened person like me or saved a person that deals with certain inclinations like me. But Newton said, wretch. And late in his life, John Newton said, I've, most, I've lost most everything I've ever learned. I can't remember well, but I know two things. I am a great sinner and Jesus is a great Savior. We are broken people. And, and, and part, of, part of the issue is we're captives to our culture. Let me mention a few things. So I uh, became a believer in 1973, 1970s, and the early 80s especially was the, was the time of self-affirmation, 
Success Magazine, all this kind of stuff that's just endemic to our culture today, and it's part of the water we drink. It's, tell me, so I, I would go to a conference, and if the speaker wasn't dealing with the scripture, they would try to be trendy and do the psychological thing, and sometimes we'd get in small groups and we'd say, tell three things you like about yourself. Tell four things you like about yourself. And I'm just, come on. And, and then sometimes would stand up and they say, stand up. And I did this two or three conferences and just wigged me out. Now, turn and now just massage the shoulders of the person in front of you. You know, I, it'd be something I didn't even know. No, I don't want anybody massaging my shoulders. No, no, no offense. I mean, my wife, my daughter, my, my, you know, not my grandkids, period. That's it. Nobody, no, don't massage my shoulders. It's just all this silly stuff. And, 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 and so... Fast forward a few years ago, uh, there's a book released called The Secret by a woman from Australia, and she's made buku bucks on it. You probably, some of you read it, there's the book covers. Inside, a lot of good art. And, but, 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 but she talks about the law of attraction. In other words, you are suffering or you don't have money because negative thoughts from the past are causing you to walk in negativity today. And if you could just think positive thoughts and and visualize your future, you know, whatever that means, you, then you could have wealth and success and happiness. And uh, people bought this, I mean, she sold hundreds, I mean, millions and millions and millions of copies of this book. She was on all the talk shows. And, and uh, I, I got it, I read it. I didn't buy it, I got it the library, but I read it. And I, see, let me tell you something. This, when you walk under the authority of this book, God, by his spirit, gives you a baloney meter. You know what I mean? And, and, and so you just start, so you hear something, you go, bank, 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 bank. And that's that, the whole book. So I think it's in chapter three. She said, you know, I know a man who had trouble getting a date. And uh, so he had, a, he had somebody that was in her thinking grid go to his house. And he looked at all the pictures in his house. And he said, all, all your pictures are of women in sorrow, or people in sorrow, or women who are turning away. Their, their faces is, is turned. So, so you are self-authenticating people turning away from you. If you want to get a date, put up happy photographs. So he did. He put up people laughing, children loving puppies. And, and all of a sudden, the book says he had all the dates he could ever imagine. And again, Ding, 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 ding. I mean, it just it goes, it goes on and on. So, so some of you listen to TED Talks. I don't, not because I don't like them. I just, I, I don't, it's not on my barometer. So, but the most famous, the second most famous TED Talk is given by a woman who's a PhD who taught at Rutgers and Harvard. Her name is Amy Cuddy. It's the second most famous TED Talk. And it's on, it's entitled Power Posing. Power Posing. And I call it, some of you call it the Wonder Woman pose. Remember Wonder Woman? And, and her whole thing is that if, before you go into an interview um, or, a, or a meeting, if you can, have a stand-up meeting and stand there with power because that releases energy in your spirit. And, um, and if you can't do that, just go into a room and power pose by yourself before you go into the meeting so that you'll just emote power. And that's the second most popular TED Talk um, ever. People are, 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 are buying into that. The Bible says that Christ brings wholeness and restoration to your brokenness, the brokenness of the world. Christ, Christ brings restoration. You see, part of my fallenness, 
to quote Martin Luther, okay, the Reformation guy that died in 1546, is that we are incurably turned in upon ourselves. We're selfish. Jesus breaks the selfishness. We've got to run to him to break it. Let me give you a couple of examples. Safe examples. They to do with me. I love homemade cookies, especially oatmeal raisin. And so we'll have a dinner party at our house, and people will bring food, and we'll have a lot of people. And, and, and if you're bringing store-bought cookies, just don't, come even, don't even come on our property. Just leave them in your car. Leave them in your car. Don't bring them out. I'm sorry for you, but don't bring store-bought cookies on, on, in our house. So, so my, we, we put out all the food. My wife has, in the last service, I said, browbeat me. That's a terrible thing to say. She has graciously trained me to eat dessert after the main meal. Okay? So the, everything's laid out, and I, this happens frequently, especially if it's raisin oatmeal. I'll kind of glance around and see if people are looking at me, and I'll walk by, and I'll adroitly pick one up, pop it in, and walk on. Because I want to eat a cookie before the meal. I don't want to wait. Now, what is that? It's all about me. There's a man named Augustine who wrote a book called Confessions. He died in 430, and Augustine said this. He said he was, he was tormented by this, which says he had a very tender conscience. He said, when I was a teenager, I went out with a group of friends, and we went out to, and we saw this beautiful pear tree, and we took the pears, and we ran away, and we just ate a couple of bites, and we threw them in the field, and we threw them in the pigsty, and we did it just because we could do it. And it says this, that shows you the depth of my sin. They go, wow, that says a tender conscience. Or as G.K. Chesterton said, said, if you want to see true original sin, watch children playing with a cat after they're bored on Sunday afternoon, you know? So you, you do it because you want to do it. Another safe example, I'm in California. And then we go to this bakery and they have incredible baked goods and they have two-day-old bread for 35 cents. I'm going, I found Nirvana. This is great. And, and so you, you get this bread and I take my Grandkids, Sarah's with the youngest. I'm with the two oldest, ages five and four almost. And they get chocolate-covered, sprinkled donuts. And I'm standing there with my day-old bread, two-day-old bread, and my chocolate-covered donuts. There's a long line. People love this place. It's a great place. And there's a, three, a party of three in front of me, and they're checking out, and they're getting their coffee and their croissants or whatever. And the guy, the next cash register, two cash registers, calls me. He said, this way, sir. So I go up there, and I, and I, and I give him my stuff. My grandkids standing there looking at me, can't wait to get outside to eat their donuts. And there's a lady standing there, and she turns to me and gets in my face. She says, sir, you cut in front of me. And I went, no, ma'am. I said, uh, this gentleman told me to come up and buy my stuff. She's already paying for her stuff. And she said, no, you cut. And I went, no, ma'am. I said, ma'am, I'm from the South, we're California, I'm going to teach you about Southern chivalry. So, no, ma'am. And the guy says, I did come up, ma'am. She said, she didn't say, oh, my bad. She went, hmm, rolled her eyes. Now, I didn't say anything. But inside, I was going, how dare you in your ostentatious, unbelievable arrogance made me look funny about my grandkids and do this and so forth and so on. Why? Sin. Sin. Just two, two easy examples about sin. See, we're broken. We're broken and we need 
the cohesive power of the Holy Spirit through Jesus. And I want to go to a, a text this morning. And it, um, very quickly, I'm going to go to 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians is a book written by the Apostle Paul to a church in a very carnal city that's beset with problems. They just have huge problems. And, and, and he starts dealing with the problems in chapter 5, which is where we'll be for a few minutes this morning. He deals with that particular problem. He deals with Christians suing each other. He deals with meat that's been sacrificed to idols. He deals with marriage and singleness and when to get married and how to handle the marriage relationship. He deals with divorce in that passage. He, he deals with spiritual gifts and so forth and so on and so forth and so on. Just issue after issue after issue after issue. But before he gets there, and this is what we need to hear, he majors on the beauty and the glory and the grandeur of all that Jesus is. Let me just read a few verses from the first few chapters of 1 Corinthians. He says this, verse, verse, uh, chapter 1, verse 18, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. It's the power of God. Verse 22, for Jews demand sign and Greeks seek wisdom, secret words, secret incantations. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and Christ is the wisdom of God. Chapter 2, verse 2, he says, when I came to you, I didn't come with lofty speech or Wisdom, but he says, I decided, I resolved to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and fear and in much trembling. Verse seven, chapter two, but we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. The secret word of wisdom, the secret incantation is Christ and him crucified. Chapter 2, verse 14, the natural man does not receive the things of God for their foolishness to him. But to those who are saved, they have understanding in Christ. Chapter 3, verse 6, they were elevating one and putting down the other. Paul said, let me remind you, I planted, Apollos watered, but the growth comes from the living God. So he just zeroes in on the glory and greatness of Christ. And then he comes to chapter 5. And I'm going to make this fairly PG, but... This is what he says. I'll read verses 1 to 6. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife, and you are arrogant. I'll do not rather to mourn. Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in body... I am present in spirit, and if present, I am already pronouncing judgment upon the one who has done this thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good, do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? So here's a, here's a situation. There is a man in the church who 
has started being with and living with, in an immoral fashion, the wife of his father, his stepmama. We don't know if his step, his wife number two, three, four, whatever, but it, it, was, it was a scandal. And Paul says, you live in Corinth, that is a city of unbelievable immorality, and not even the pagans do this. And so Paul says, man, deal with this. Help this broken man to treasure Jesus. He says, when, I'm, when you're gathered together and worship, you're there as a body of believers. He says, you are to, in the name of Jesus, after you try to talk to him and convince him and love him, if you still doesn't listen, you are to hand him over to Satan so that his body may be destroyed, but he'll come back to faith and his spirit will be saved. It's a strong statement. It's a really strong statement. We can't get into all the particulars. But, but when somebody is involved in this situation, especially as a professing Christian, there are three options. The first two are not good. One option is to say, well, well, we live in a rough world. These things are going to happen. Nothing I can do about it. He's made his own bed. Let him lie in it. Let's go to lunch. The second option is, is my picture, word picture is that there's a forest fire and, and fire, forest fires can travel at least six miles an hour. Sometimes if the wind is blowing much faster. I mean, a forest fire can just be vast. So there's a huge forest fire. Animals are fleeing. Hikers are fleeing. Campers are fleeing. And you're fleeing and the fire's right behind you. And you come upon a guy who's fallen and he's holding his ankle. And you say, what's wrong? He says, I've either broken my ankle or I've severely twisted it, but I can't put any weight on this ankle. I can't get up. And, 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 and so we have one of two options. We can say, well, gee, that's a tough break. Here is my last bottle of Gatorade. Enjoy it before you get burned alive. I got, I got to go. Listen, we do that often in the church with people. We don't walk with wounded. We don't care for broken people. I don't do this very well. But the other option is a biblical option. That is to say, like we said last week, remember Lord of the Rings, Fellowship of the King, Samwise Sam says to Frodo as I go up Mount Doom, Master Frodo, I can't carry it, the ring, but I can carry you. What a great statement. You, you, you lift him up, you put his arm around you. If you can, you put him on your shoulder and you carry him to safety. That's what Paul says we're to be doing here. We are our brother's keeper to answer the question from Genesis. So just a few key points. Number one, we are to help each other. We always come with humility as broken people. Nobody here has it all together who are continuously involved in the ongoing process of restoration through repentance, which is changing my mind about myself, my sin, the living God, and his triune glory, and his path of obedience. There is no personal triumphalism or self-aggrandizement. That's why I went to Galatians 6 last week. When you see a brother who is trapped in a sin, you who are spiritual, that's us. Go and restore him. See? Restore him in a spirit of gentleness. As you watch yourself, lest you too be tempted. I've said it a thousand times. I'll say it a thousand times more if the Lord gives me life. One thing that keeps me humble and prayerful, I hope, is that I can fill out on this piece of paper 
the names of, one name for every line, the names of godly men who professed Jesus, who fell into open sin, who were more godly than I will ever be. Better men than I'll ever be. So we don't come with triumphalism. At the same time, we don't minimize, we don't minimize the statements of the Bible. We're, we're not some type of, hey, I, I'm with you, let's go. No, you say, we're going to go the Lord's path. We're, we're, we're going to go, we're, we're going to go this way. We live in a culture that accommodates, 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 and you just get beat down. I mean, sometimes you just want to go, whatever. Man, don't do that. Don't do that. So I was, I was out, out west, and I was picked up a little, you know, one of these newspapers that a small town puts out once every week or two. And in the article, there was an, there was an article about a man who just died who's 60-some years old, and he was an outdoorsman who loved the outdoors in this beautiful area, and he was involved in rescue of riding a snowmobile in the winter or, or going into the forest to find people in the summer who'd gotten, high, who'd gotten lost. And um, he talked about he was in charge of, he was in the Sierra Club and did this and did that, whatever. Then it said he was survived by his fourth wife. And uh, then it interviewed some people, and his son said this, and I, I was like, I can't believe this. His son said, you know, my dad had four wives and various girlfriends, but I, I want to say this about my dad. He was a serial monogamist. And, and, and what, what that means is he was, he was faithfully committed to the woman with whom he was having me hanging out with that month or that year. And I thought, wow. So he's celebrating this fact. And really that's just called, really that type of lifestyle is called an immoral man who can't tr control his impulses. That's what it is. And, and it's easy for us to fall into accommodation. Man, be biblical, be broken, be caring, but be strong. We, all, we, we, we speak with strength and tears. That only comes by the power of the Holy Spirit. I'm telling you. You can either slide up this way or that way. So I was, I, I, can't, I was reading a magazine this week. I don't know why I was reading it, but it, I was flip, flipping through and had, came across an article about one of my favorite actors or actresses, Jennifer Aniston. I just think she's funny. And so in the article, is just an interview with her former husband. And his name is Justin uh, something, starts the T, I don't know him. It's not important. He was married to Jennifer Aniston. That's why it's important. And uh, he, was, he was interviewed last, last Sunday morning in, uh, good, uh, on the Today Show. I mean, this is what he said in part. This comes from an Esquire magazine, but he said that um, they were engaged in 2012 and then got married uh, in the backyard ceremony three years later. I'm, really? I mean, listen, once you get engaged, get married. Two weeks Three weeks, just get married. No, 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 just get married. Why are you engaged for three years? Anyway, engaged three years, married three years. Then they divorced. This is what he said. We have remained good friends and we sexed and called each other frequently. He went on and said on the show, I would say that we've remained friends. We don't talk every day, but we call each other. We FaceTime, we text, and we love each other. I'm sincere when I say that I cherish our friendship. And, and you know, at this point, my baloney meter is jumping off the chart. Let me say this. Uh, fight against that type of attitude. Well, let me quote another guy who's maybe a little bit smarter than Justin, whatever his last name is. This is C.S. Lewis, written as a, as a single man during World War II. 
about Christian marriage. Listen. Christian, Christianity teaches that marriage is for life. There is, of course, a difference here between different churches. Some do admit divorce in extreme cases, but all admit it is a great pity to be egregiously avoided. They all regard divorce as something like cutting up a living body as, as a kind of surgical operation. Some of them think that the operation is so violent that it cannot be done at all. Others admit it as a desperate remedy in extreme cases. They are all agreed upon this. It's like having both legs cut off it's instead of dissolving a business partnership or even deserting a regiment. What they all agree with is the modern view that it is simply disagree with is the modern view that it's a simple readjustment of partners to be made whenever people feel they are no longer in love with one another or when either of them falls in love with someone else. So, so I'm saying watch the area of accommodation. Number two, because of the goodness of the Lord, we are committed to walking in known repentance. To, to means to be making adjustments to receive the renewal and restoration power of the Holy Spirit in the area of ourself, our sin, God, and the path of obedience. Thirdly, the path of life brings restoration and healing. Therefore, we will not give bottles of Gatorade to those who are about to be consumed by the raging fire, but we will give them the gospel of grace. Now, two application statements. Brokenness of our world, of ourselves, our need, corresponds to biblical reality. Life is joyful and messy. And the restoration is never complete until we get to heaven. It's just messy. Nobody here has it all together. Nobody here is omnicompetent. All of us walk through sorrows and heartache and keen disappointments. So, last Saturday, Sarah and I were watching Prince Philip's funeral. It was beautiful. The pageantry was beautiful. Um, just incredible. And we didn't get to watch all of it, but I was just, I was going, wow. And so, I... I, I watched The Crown, so I know all about the royal family, okay? But uh, I've, I've done some research, and I, I really admire Prince Philip. He came from a horribly dysfunctional family. He had four sisters, uh, one of whom, the one who really loved him the most, died in a plane crash when he was a teenager with, with his, her wife, her husband, and three children. It was terrible. And, but, but all four of, the, of his sisters married Nazis or Nazi sympathizers. In fact, his sisters could not come to his wedding in 1952. They weren't invited. Terrible fractured family. Um, but he fought gallantly in World War II. Um, I, I like Prince Philip. And I really, 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 really like Queen Elizabeth. I kind of have a crush on Queen Elizabeth. I think she's really neat. I think she knows the Lord. I think her statements are strong. I admire her mom and her dad, who was, they were strong pillars in World War II. I admire, incredibly admire her great-great-grandmother, Victoria, and her husband, Prince Albert, who truly was a, a, a go-for-it, loved the gospel believer in Jesus before his very untimely death. But she had an uncle who was a scandal, who was supposed to be the king and was king for a few months. And it's a tragedy. And then as I 
watched the funeral. I saw her four children walking behind the hearse, the coffin of their dad. I'm sorry not to be injudicious if I'm offensive, but three of the four of the kids are losers. They're losers. And, And brokenness and unfaithfulness and and then you got the two grandsons who supposedly aren't speaking to each other walking back there. And I thought, what a messy, broken family like ours. Hurting people like yours, like ours. That, that's who we are. I frequently with people and I'll, I'll, I'll ask this question, how are you doing one to 10? How's your marriage one to 10? One being horrible, horrible, horrible. Ten being couldn't get any better. And no one, to my knowledge, if they do, if anybody ever says, it's a ten, I say, liar, liar, pants on fire. There's no marriage that's perfect. There's no parenting that's perfect. There's no job that's perfect. There's no relationship that's perfect. It's messy and it's up and it's down. And that's just life. And so... That's why in our brokenness, precedence for all of us, we run to Jesus because he restores. That's who he is. That's that's what he has done. We're broken. We speak to a culture that's broken in this moment of our time. The second application, very quickly, is that when you understand brokenness, it opens the door. Boom! Boom! For relationships. I mean, we had a young European exchange student here at church two or three years ago, and I was talking to her, and she hadn't been here long. She, she had great English. She said, uh, she says, I really like, I really like Charleston, like being here, but I'm confused about something. What do you, what do you, what do you mean? She says, well, I'm, I'm out, and people will say to me, how are you doing? And she says, I begin to tell them, and they walk away. I said, well, help, let me help you realize this. We don't mean that when we say it. That's just like saying good morning in our culture. It's like saying hi. It's like saying hi. She says, oh, I understand now. And yet I thought how tragic it is to be in the body of Christ and, and if, or in a family or in a community group. And when people say, how are you doing? They don't really listen. You know? She says, we're broken. We're needy. We need grace. Jesus says, I'm the vine. I'm the vine. You're, you're, you're a branch. Whoever abides in this angel oak vine brings forth much fruit, but you can't do it apart from me. We say that. Helping broken people be restored, be renewed, be reinvigorated to repent, to treasure, worship, adore the one who's the Alpha and the Omega. Thank you for being a body of Christ that really has opened your hearts to to me these years. Thank you for that. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this uh, day, and we thank you that you call us to walk with one another in, at times, in just painful times. Uh, In times where the sunlit plains and the birds are singing, but at times when it's just hard. And I thank you that that will be the ongoing experience until we get to heaven. And I thank you that we serve you, Lord Jesus, who restores, renews, refurbishes, re-energizes as we walk in repentance. So what what can be done to a, a cold heart like mine? 
to soften it up with the oil of new wine? Well, the answer is we run to the cross. Come, Jesus, by the power of the Holy Spirit. In Christ's name, amen.